Welcome to the Invisible India podcast. I'm Jessica. And I'm Abhishek. We are a cross-cultural couple doing life in India, exploring the lesser-known mysteries of Indian culture, interviewing fascinating figures who have chartered new territories, and sharing life as we raise our multicultural family amongst the complexities of modern Indian life. Today I have with me Ajay Varghese. He is an assistant professor of political science at the University of California, Riverside. And he has done his PhD focusing on India and various aspects of religion, different communities within India. We are going to have him talk a little bit more about himself and his research today. Hey, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, for sure. I'm super glad to have you on. So we met you here in Bihar, which is kind of an odd place to find (laughs) a person like you, a learned person like you who is wanting to do research. It's sometimes you would expect people to be in larger cities or more well-known kind of political hotspots. So it was really refreshing when we met you and knew that you were focusing some of your research in Bihar. I think you first met Abhishek in a coffee shop, is that right? <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say it's, uh, in one sense, it's unusual maybe um, meeting in Bihar, but in the other sense, Abhishek and I met at Cafe Coffee Day, and that is not unusual at all. That's a very Indian story, I think. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I think it was the fact that we were both using Apple uh, laptops that uh, initially mm-hmm. brought us together, and then then we quickly became friends. Cafe Coffee Day, and now I think we have a lot better coffee shops than Cafe Coffee Day. But back a couple of years ago when we met you, that was the only choice we had. So <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I I always remember, especially uh, we went and then picked up your son from school, and yes. you know within with yeah, I had known Abhishek for like an hour, and he was like. Your son was like, who's this guy? And he was like, oh, this is Ajay, uncle. And I was like, this is such a great thing about India that you know, like, <laughs> it takes one hour and you're someone's uncle and you're, you're riding on a scooter with them. And it's like such a great story. <laughs> <laughs> you are an Indian American, which I find to be so fascinating that you've kind of dug into your roots a bit. And where I find that a lot of Indian Americans kind of run away from anything having to do with India. So... <laughs> Yeah. So, and here you are. Um, you've learned Hindi, which is not even the language that you grew up having much familiarity with. So how did you end up here? The interesting thing is, I think if you had met me when I was like 16 or so, I, I definitely fit the bill of uh, an Indian American who was running away from India. I had really like no interest in India. Our family, you know, didn't even really visit that often. I probably would never have anticipated actually going back to India. Mm-hmm. But then I went to graduate school. And even then, I initially didn't want to focus on, I mean, I wanted to be a professor. That's what I always wanted to be. But I was more focused on like European politics, or mm-hmm. I had some interest in North Africa, you know, I'd studied French, I didn't know any Indian languages. Um, and what happened was, I got to grad school, and I realized that kind of 
the countries I wanted to study and the things I wanted to study were really already quite saturated. And mm. there were just so many smart people working on that part of the world. And India was just super understudied, at least in comparison. I guess it was serendipitous that I started to think about, well, maybe this is a way I can learn a little bit more about India. And then, you know, when I was thinking about what languages to study, probably the easiest language would have been Malayalam, sure. which I know, you know, I know a little bit of Malayalam and I can just kind of barely get by and can understand a good deal. But I thought that gives me access really to one state and learning Hindi gives me access to a lot of states. And mm -hmm. so when I decided to study Hindi and told my parents <laughs> that I was going to study it, they were so they were so confused and shocked that I would ever <laughs> want to learn Hindi. So yeah, it was it was really uh, it was not planned out. So this is this is very much coincidental that I ended up doing what I do and and ended up in Bihar. I think that's a lot of people's story. But I know that's part of our story too. Is how did I end up you know back here or. Sometimes we still ask ourselves that question. <laughs> yeah. So I want to hear a little bit more about you and diving a little bit into your research before we get into the nitty gritty. Besides India being a less saturated area of study, what were some of your initial questions or research ideas that you wanted to dig into? I was always really interested in history kind of more specifically historical legacies, the history of India. I mean, what can you say? It's it's just um, endless, right? Yeah. When I was thinking about doing a PhD, I almost did a history PhD, but then I thought that I could do more kind of political history. And so I did a political science PhD instead. But I was always interested in history. And when I started learning Hindi, it was actually in in Jaipur and Rajasthan, which is okay. like all we learned about was the history of these antique states and these Rajput states. And so mm -hmm. um, it immediately kind of um, meshed with my research interests. A at the time that I was like first in graduate school, there were just a, a number of really good books that came out about Indian politics, specifically like Hindu-Muslim conflict. And so I noticed that a lot of these books were very much focused on post-independence, you know, how what, sure. what happened in India in the 60s and 80s, and then with the Babri Masjid stuff in the early mm -hmm. 90s. Um, yes. And so I thought, well, let's take a kind of a deeper look and see how colonialism influenced these conflicts. And so that's really how I started. I see. And so that eventually became your dissertation or formed your dissertation. So you can tell, can you tell us a little bit about your dissertation and how that became your first book? Yeah, so the um, so the dissertation basically grew out of my interest in ethnic conflict and trying to understand how colonialism had affected ethnic conflict. And so, you know, the kind of simple answer is the basic thing that I heard from everyone was, oh, you know, these conflicts didn't really exist until the British came to India. Mm -hmm. So I remember, you know, one of the kind of earliest conversations I had with somebody in India, he's, you know, when I said I was interested in ethnic violence, he said, well, you know, that's all the fault of the Britishers. And that was right. just kind of his, his take. And so I thought, well, you know, that's like the easy answer. Um and that could very well be true, but that's something that we haven't really proven. It's hard to prove that because what's the comparison? I mean, you'd have right. to compare like India before the British came and then after. And so people were, I think, just kind of jumping to the assumption that um, 
British colonialism had yeah. this effect that we could that we could really measure. Right. And so what I wanted to do, especially because I was living in Jaipur, which was a former princely state, and then one day actually on a field trip in our Hindi class, we went to Ajmer. And yeah. it was the only British province in Rajasthan. And it was it was neighboring to Jaipur. And so I thought, you know, what could we learn by just kind of comparing an area that was under the direct rule of the British with an area that, you know, I won't say that Jaipur was independent, but um, because obviously all of the princely states still had a lot of, you know, British influence. But mm-hmm. um, it was a comparison of an area that was colonial versus an area that was much less colonial. Mm-hmm. And so I started to kind of structure my research around these comparisons. A second one is North and South Kerala. You know, North Kerala was under the control of the British and, the, and most yeah. of the South was, was princely. And so I started making these comparisons of these case studies. And then I had collected data and you did a statistical analysis of India. And so kind of what I found was that if you look at areas of India today, Areas that were under the control of the British, they have more caste and tribal conflict. You ha- you would have more, you know, atrocities committed against untouchables. You have more Maoist, you know, the Naxalite conflict is higher in British areas. But what really surprised me was that religious conflict was lower in these areas, which is really kind of unexpected because everyone thinks of Hindu-Muslim conflict as a legacy of British rule. And so... I made this argument about various kind, you know, what kinds of violence did we see in India before the British came, and then how did British colonialism shape and change these conflicts? And so the kind of main finding is that there's not really one effect. It's it's really more of a mixed effect. It, British rule increased some kinds of violence, decreased other forms of violence. And so I think anyone who tells you a very simple story about colonialism and ethnic violence in India is... Um, it's, that that's going to lack a lot of nuance. I think it's a much more complicated story than than people think. Yeah, to quote your Twitter, say some blame the British for all ethnic violence in India, some absolve them for all of it. I split the difference in my book. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, sounds so The book has something to annoy everybody. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a perfect read. Right. Do you feel like this is an excuse that's used? by majority of, of people that you talk to about ethnic violence, or does it kind of pop up in more communities than others? I think that, I mean, it seemed to be pretty um, a pretty common response that I heard from mm-hmm. people about, about kind of the British... Um, Mm-hmm. you know, caused a lot of this violence. I think there's yeah. like a pretty, pretty strong narrative about that. Yeah. Um, so what's kind of interesting is that now that is changing because, you know, in the past several decades, because of BJP governments, you know, they have changed the mm. textbooks that are used. And so I think now you have a deeper kind of historical perspective of when these conflicts started. But the downside of that is, of course, you know, many of these uh, many of these studies that they use as textbooks are are you have come under a lot of controversy and criticism mm. and have some very strong anti-Muslim biases. Yeah. So I I think that's probably changing to some respect. I I would imagine like younger Indians think of Hindu-Muslim conflict as like a much deeper issue, which is good, which yeah. is good and bad because I think it's I think that's true, but I think it's easy to distort what that means. Sure. I know this is something that I hear all the time. Maybe not here in in Bihar. You know, people are expert blamers, but 
uh, people don't really mean it. You know, they don't have like reasons, reasons for this. And most of the response I find is, oh, you know, what can we do? There's not a lot of fuel behind it or anger behind it. It's just, oh, you know, things are messed up. You know, it's the government's fault. It's this, you know, politician's fault. It's the British fault. You know, what can we do? Let's right. just, let's just you know slug along. That's kind of at least what I find the attitude is here in Bihar. So, which is good, but it, and it's also bad. I think you know some people are are too adjusted to the way things are and maybe need to fight back a little more. But I, I don't. This is my personal opinion. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you do. I do think you more and more hear like these revenge narratives of mm-hmm. like. I mean, I've heard a number of people speak with a lot of like indignation about things that happened 500 years ago that Mm. you don't even really know where your family was or how this affected you. I mean, no one knows those things. You know, there's this idea of like history as retribution. Actually, you know, in in the Supreme Court's Ayodhya verdict just just a a few days ago, I think they actually, yeah, they, they, they mentioned this. They said something like trying to right historical wrongs, you know, by tearing Mm -hmm. down mosques and temples is not... uh, is not the way we should go about it. And so I think people recognize that, but there, I think there is this sense of like resentment that certain communities feel about the past. For sure. Most definitely. And I imagine it's different in different communities, how you, you know, manipulate the masses. And here when you have such, especially, you know, where, where we're at, it's, there's such a huge population of illiterate people and, and, especially in a lot of the villages and even in urban areas too. So, you know, people have no sense of what's actual news and what's fake news. And even literate people are unable to tell the difference between what's actual fact and what's fake news. So, I mean, is that something that you also see that really affects people's biases? Yeah. I I mean, so the way that, the prime minister puts it is that you know what what he is on record as saying is he he used the term uh when he was talking about kind of the history of the hindu community in india he said it was a thousand years of i think he said either slavery or i think it was translated as like you know slavery or the slave mentality a thousand years of the mm. slave mentality so when you hear i mean and he's an immensely popular figure and so i think when you have lots of young uh, boys and girls, men and women who hear this, that's um, they they take him uh, at his word and they think that that what he's saying is accurate. And I don't think it is accurate. And so um, right. I do think that that yeah is a very you know I think they had a very cons- concerted effort to change the narrative on uh, how we think about the roots of violence in India today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Can you talk a little bit about where your research is taking you now? What are you working on now? Yeah, so the um, the the work on colonialism uh, is basically done. I think right. one thing that happens as a scholar is I spent so much time, you know, I spent like 10 years um, working on that and then you get really bored <laughs> and you just sure. don't want. So, so when someone like occasionally I'll get an email from a graduate student or something, they ask about colonialism and I just like roll my eyes. Cause I'm like, that's so, that's so like, first project. I don't want to talk about that anymore. Read the book. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I think of that as, as basically maybe someday I'll want to write more about that, but I, I don't really have much interest in that mm-hmm. anymore. 
So I started to get interested now much more in, um, I mean, still in the issue of religion, but it, it doesn't really have anything to do with violence. And so what, what actually happened was, this was like in 2010, I think. So I was still working on the first project. And I was in Madras with my, um, my mother had come to India and we were in Madras, which is where she and my father grew up and where I was born. I was walking down the street and I saw this sign for like a, a local, I think they called themselves like a rationalist society or a secular society. And they were going to have a public debate about uh, Richard Dawkins book, The God Delusion. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, is that the like how many other parts of India yeah. could you even have could you even have a public discussion about about that without you know potentially offending people? And then I wondered, you know, like is that the kind of thing that my father saw in the '60s or '70s in Madras? And so I started to think about this very old topic in political science and sociology that's called secularization. This idea that you know, as society has become more modern, which is uh, just another way of saying, you know, as incomes rise and literacy rises, people in these countries tend to become less religious. That's that's the kind of classic theory. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that theory pretty much, I mean, very profitably explained Western Europe. You saw the decline mm-hmm. of organized religion and, and religious views in, uh, in lots of Western countries. Um, it's it's more of a question about America. I think you see the rise of people who are non-religious, who call themselves nuns. They have no religious affiliation in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, so it's, it just struck me that, first of all, this was a theory that was really kind of based in, in, in Europe and based on uh, what I call, you know, what, what scholars call the Abrahamic religions, that's mm-hmm. Judaism, yes. Christianity, and Islam. Yes. And so I just started to think, you know, does this actually apply to Hinduism, right? Because yeah, Hinduism a is a very religion. Right. It's a very different religion. You need different measures. Um, you need to think about how terms are translated. And so sure. I remember thinking, even back in 2010, I thought, okay, once I'm done all this coloni- colonialism stuff, I'll come back to this. And so that is the project, uh, book project that I've been working on for the last for the last several years. Just trying to answer that question: as India becomes a more developed country, mm. will Hindus become less religious, um, as secularization theory might predict? Or a lot of people think the opposite is happening: that people mm. Hindus are becoming more religious. And so mm. that's that's what I've for the past like two years I've been working on. Yeah, you're so right. In in as you're looking at that question of particular case of seeing a, a debate you know I don't how many places would that be possible in India and uh, without people burning tires in the street and or is that even a goal that we're wanting to move towards it's it's just an interesting measure to see you know how how yeah, it interact with this idea of secularism right and the, and you know so that that term I don't think uh even translates very well because I think, I mean, I've surveyed a lot of Hindus. Um, in total, the project will will survey at least starting out around 2000. And mm-hmm. you know, most people don't even know they've heard of the term secular. Even even sure. educated people in cities will say, yeah, you know, I've heard it on the radio or I've seen it on the news, but they don't know what it means. Um, and the you know the one kind of example I always use is that. When we think about secularization in other countries, we we usually say, 
we usually use like two main measures. We say, do do people believe in God and do they go to church or mosque or, uh, you know, synagogue? Sure. Right. And, you know, in Hinduism, you don't have to do either right. of those things. Right. You to don't be have Hindu. to believe in Exactly. Yeah, you mm-hmm. don't have to believe in God. Uh, you don't ever have to go to a temple if you if you don't want to. Most people have puja shelves at right. home. And so um, so those those measures just don't translate. And so I had to spend a lot of time just thinking about what does how would we measure religiosity mm-hmm. in such a different kind of tradition? Sure. It's almost as if, you know, there's in the dharmic religions, if you even want to call them religions, right? It's just more of a way of life or something that you're just born into. And um, it's interesting how as as we just see how things become a little more polarized or as things become a little more defined, you know, I don't even know when people started calling themselves Hindus, you know, where did that term come from? You know, we have the theories of, oh, the Indus Valley and, you know, anyone that basically wasn't a Muslim, they started calling Hindu, all of these things that we hear. Uh, but now there seems to be a little bit more of a formed idea of what that means. But, yeah, really anyone, if, if you're born a Hindu, you're, that's what you are. You slap a label on it. You can be religious or non-religious. You can do puja. You can not do puja. You can eat certain things. You can not eat certain things. It, it really doesn't. There's nothing defined. What behaviors define what that actually means? <laughs> right. Yeah. So and and it varies. You know. So in in Bihar, um, you're going to have a very different set of practices, right. and diets, and yes. you know. Than if you just compare it with Bengal, for example, right? Um, so yeah. And you know the thing you said about the way of life. I mean, that's the that's what the Supreme Court has said about Hinduism that it's not a religion. Right. It's it's a way of life. And so. Right. But what does that mean? I mean, I, you don't actually hear a lot of Hindus use that. Uh, right. at, at least, at least, I mean, the English-speaking ones might might say that. But um, sure. you go to the villages, and people aren't saying, "Well, it's a way of life." You know, for them, right. it's it is a religion, and it's yeah. Um, traditions. Yeah, exactly. You'll hear people say, "It's my parampara, it's my tradition," that kind of thing. So yeah. it's um, suffice it. You know, the the interesting thing is when I first. Um, before I ever came to India, before I met you guys, you know, I was at a Carnegie workshop and I just presented some ideas for, for my survey and questions about Hinduism. And I remember a few of my friends, kind of uh, other other professors, very well-intentioned, they were like, are you sure that you want to do this topic? <laughs> you know, they said like, this is going, just trying to figure out what it means to be Hindu will take you so long. And, and, what, and what happens if you get too frustrated? And, you know, they, they were... It was like well-intentioned, but they were saying, are you really sure you want to kind of go down this path? Because mm-hmm. studying religion is really, is, and studying Hinduism especially, is just very, mm-hmm. very complicated. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's almost like if you ask 10 Hindu people what they believe, you'll get 10 different answers. It's yeah. not about belief. That's right. Probably, probably 11 or 12 different answers, but yeah. Right. That's right. That, is, that is exactly right. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> perfect example. So yeah, also from your Twitter, you mentioned it's going to be very tedious in my second book when I write this sentence every other page as you're defining dharma. Dharma, translation, religion, law, duty, norm, social usage, right conduct, morality, justice, or righteousness. Right. <laughs> this is like a perfect explanation as you're mentioning. You know, in, 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 Hinduism is often called you know, Sanatan Dharma. And right. 
the eternal, you know, religion, law, duty, norm, associations, all these things. Right. Right. So yeah. how, you know, people as they're as they're talking about their way of life, it's often used, you know, ye mera dharm hai, dharm nibhana hai, mujhe apna dharm nibhana hai. So they say like, I have to, you know, complete basically what I'm supposed to do. And how that's defined, how do you know what you're supposed to do? Well, it's often been what's been told to you directly or indirectly by your elders, your parents, those who have gone before you and your family. So, and some people who've, you know, even strayed away from that and who are looking in, in different areas of, of spirituality, like what fall, falls within dharam and what falls you know, outside of the dharam is it's very complex. There are no clear cut answers. Yeah. Is that a way that you often hear people describe themselves or do people not get that philosophical? <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, so first let me go back to one thing you said, this, this term yeah. Sanatan. There, there, you, you do have some people who actually describe themselves using that term. And so, you know, those tend to be, in my experience, older men mm. who, you know, can, can know that that term, I think the earliest usage of that term is in the Bhagavad Gita, um, although it's kind of unclear what it what it means. But, mm. you know, you, you do hear some more educated men kind of say that. Um, but most people, you know, when we just ask them, you know, what is your, which which religion are you? Kis dharm ko mante hai, we say. And they, you know, yeah, and so they say Hindu. And then when we kind of talk to them about what that means, the the number one response that or the 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 best way i can describe your average respondent in in the survey is they're just kind of very confused as to why <laughs> i'm mm. there asking these questions and they'll they'll sure. sometimes say things like uh you know if i ask so what are the, what are the things that you do or religious activities that you do or what are your religious beliefs and they'll say you know i believe things that hindus believe Mm-hmm. Or they'll say, I, I do things that Hindus do. And so there's like there's just a very kind of clear sense, I think, within the community of, mm-hmm. of certain things. But to outsiders, they're like, why why is this interesting to you? Why would you come here right. and ask me? You know, they're not irritated, but they're just kind of, uns- you know, they don't really understand the motivation. You know, what you said was right, that like Hinduism is a pretty exclusive club. You're born into it, right? And so I could never, I mean, I guess there are, there are issues of whether you can convert and become a Hindu, but um, at the very least, it's not easy, right? It's not. It's not like right. converting to Christianity or something. So I think there's this strong sense of this is the this is a kind of everyone understands certain community norms in a village or in a city or in a yeah. caste, but people outside have always kind of struggled to to figure out what what is actually going on in Hinduism. I think it's pretty hard for outsiders to understand. Mm-hmm. Especially those of us that come from a, a more Western linear way of you know, extracting information or, you know, black and white kind of, if you're, if yeah. you're, the more comfortable you are in the gray, the, the more uh, suited you are to kind of have you know, any barometer for understanding. And I'm not saying that I do. I'm just saying that, you know, right. the, 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 the more and more, Ambiguous, the more or, ambiguous yeah. ally allow my expectations to be, the better I understand what is happening yeah. around me in a primarily Hindu culture. So, in a lot, sometimes things still surprise me. Um, a lot of times, yeah. things still surprise me. 
anytime you anytime that someone says, you know, I really understand, you know, and can explain everything about Hinduism, it's like, oh wow, you're really don't you don't you feel sorry for those people? It's like, oh wow, you <laughs> you you really missed the whole point here, didn't you? <laughs> Right. Yeah. So I'm sure you come across this all the time in in your circles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And you know, there's this. There was this book like written maybe like just a year or two ago. Um, I was listening to a podcast by. It's called Why Buddhism Is True. It's by Robert Wright. Um, you know, he's he's I he's not. I don't think he's an academic. It was kind of more of a popular press book. But he did have this one funny line in the book where he said that so much of Buddhism was about like paradoxes and that's true of all the kind of, I mean, Buddhism is considered an Indic religion. And so he has this great line in the book where he says, if you don't like paradoxes, then Eastern philosophy is probably not the right thing for you. And so I think what what I say to my students is, you know, there are lots of things that are neither true nor false, right? And if you can't kind of wrap your head around that, then you're not going to like learning about Hinduism. Um, If you can let go of this idea it was very postmodern, right? That there is like one God or one truth or whatever. If you can relax that assumption, then then things will be easier to understand. Mm-hmm. How does a person go from having this very black and white, right or wrong kind of thinking to an understanding to be able to wrap your mind around paradoxes? I mean, how did you kind of make that move or did you have to make that move? Yeah, so... Um, in my politics of India and Pakistan, we have a class where we talk about we talk about Hinduism, and then in my religion and or politics and religion class, we we read a book about Hinduism. And yes, I think it's something that they struggle with. I, I always say it kind of at the beginning that this is this is something that you have to understand about Hinduism. You know, there's no Bible, there's no Pope, there's no. Right. Um, you know, one true there's doctrine. No five, there's no five tenets, five right. pillars. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think that there is a lot of confusion initially with students about about that. Um, but I think that once we, you know, one thing that kind of um, helps is uh, like some of the mythological stories, which have, because mm-hmm. there's there's just so many versions of each myth, right? I mean, right. how many versions of the Ramayana are there, right? Yeah. So, um, so once you once they kind of realize that um, there's a that, that there's just a kind of multiplicity of viewpoints, and um, each myth has uh, so many different versions, then I think they start to kind of understand. Um, a little bit more about Hinduism. I, I think, like for them, the hard thing is understanding like how it's actually survived this long. You know, because in their minds, like to have a religion and to survive, you need a like leaders. Yeah, <laughs> a you need leader. a, you need, <laughs> a founder. You something like you need right. like a like a place where people can go once a week. Um, so <laughs> so they don't, I think, understand exactly. And it's a good question, you know, how a religion like that that's that's so decentralized and so um, open to different viewpoints has survived. Um, so I think that's that's maybe the harder question for them. Sure. I've heard a lot of different scholars and whatnot say there is no Hinduism. There's Hinduisms. Right. And, yeah. and, uh, and we could say that about some other faiths too, but that's not what we're talking about on this podcast. So, yeah. But I think, you know, how a Telugu Brahmin would live their life would look very different from a village Bihari person. You know, right. what their 
bhakti, what their dharam, what their lifestyle looks like would be. And right, I mean, right. Kanak would even say that those people are, you know, part of the same religion. Maybe they both like Krishna, but maybe that's the, <laughs> the end of, you know, some kind of good feelings when they hear the stories about, you know, baby Krishna or adult Krishna and the different mythologies there. But that might be one of the only similarities about right. the way yeah. their daily life looks. So, yeah, it's it's, it's super complicated. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Anyone that, that thinks otherwise is. You know, sometimes when I see people do like a survey and they come in and they're in, in an Indian city for like 10 days, I think, right. how, you know, like what what could you ever learn about a place yeah. in, in 10 days? So, yeah, spend, you know, spend time learning languages. I think for me, um, part of the, and I'm not saying that I'm any expert by any means, but I think just really living in the culture, the only way I've really been able to wrap my mind around or even begin to wrap my mind around uh, what Hinduism or Hinduisms is is becoming, was maybe in the future, <laughs> having friendships and relationships with people that would identify as as Hindu and a variety of different people, not just one area. So um, I, I used to live in uh, Haridwar, which is a very kind of like high caste uh, Brahmin, very vegetarian, very religious uh, kind of place. And that was one view. And then, of course, being married to a Bihari, now that's another deep dive on a very different side of even North India and even Hindi speaking North India. And I'm, right. I mean, yeah. this, this, the exposure that I've had is just such a fraction of what's out there, but, but it's just been so rich and even understanding how people's just, yeah, how, how Hinduism or Hinduisms has survived. It's, I really, it's, it's incredible. I think this is just one of the lesser understood cocktail of philosophies or cocktail yeah. of right. um, <laughs> lifestyles. <laughs> and so I'm so glad that you're really dedicating your life to understanding and, and, and digging into this. And what I, I mean, I guess one thing that I would hope is just because we don't have, you know, very often what we do or what scholars do is just take questions from other traditions and right. ask and ask them of Hindus. So I, yeah. you know, I've tried to develop some different kinds of questions. And if you get a large enough number of respondents, um, it would be kind of, I, I would think of it, you know, th there are just so many people who do ethnography, you know, people mm -hmm. in religious studies or anthropology. And so I th would see this as kind of a complement to that because, mm -hmm. um, because they're not doing surveys, right? They're going to a village or they're going to a, a neighborhood and living there for a long time and having daily interactions with people. But I think, you know, what I hope my book at some point would, would add to the conversation is here are context-specific questions on Hinduism and let's see what 2,000 or maybe someday if I can can expand the survey, five or 10,000 Hindus think about these issues and then maybe we can get more of an insight into the Hindu worldview or the way of life or whatever whatever you want to call it. Mm. Well, I feel like we're just getting started, but I <laughs> feel like we need to have a part two with you, with Abhishek. Yeah. On here, you know? <laughs> All right. So I want to ask you kind of a closing question. Um, so what are some of the ways that you've personally been changed as you dig through 
the layers of what India has to teach us? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Well, so, I mean, one, one kind of thing that uh, I always try to think about is, um, you know, just how privileged I've been in my life. I mean, first of all, to have grown up in a middle class, you know, family that was able to go to America. I mean, my, you know, my parents came to the U.S. They wanted us to have, you know, go to American schools and they wanted to start a new life there. In a country that is a very, you know, poor country, a country that um, still is lacking, you know, basic infrastructure in a lot of places. And of course, this is the case in Bihar, you know, that I've been incredibly lucky in my uh, in my life. And I'm incredibly privileged to have the opportunity to come back to India and to learn from people and have a job where this is, you know, something that I get to do. And so I always try to kind of remember that that's, um, mm. that's a privilege and also like a responsibility to get things mm. right, you know, mm. to to come here and if if I just came to India and did a lot of research on Hinduism where I spoke to Brahmin men then I wouldn't mm. be taking that seriously you know sure. uh, so so that's one thing I think just just feeling grateful about about my own life and then also you know another thing is just because Hinduism is such a you know like you said a religion it just everything depends on who you're talking to just trying yes. to I mean, it, it makes you kind of problematize a lot of the things that you thought you knew um, right. <laughs> about things outside of Hinduism. Like, you know, you just always kind of question, well, here's a perspective that I had on something. But really, I, I only got the views of men or I only got the views of people who are wealthy. And um, and if you spend a little bit of time talking to somebody else, you'll get a totally different perspective. You know, I, I would say in general, like India helped me, re especially because I first came here as a very kind of green graduate student, helped me realize I was not as smart as I thought I was. And so um, <laughs> that's that's something that's probably good for most academics to remember. That, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff you don't know. And so I'm, I'm trying to kind of like revel in the fact that there are lots of things I don't know and that I can... Mm -hmm. I can just sit with people and have chai and, 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 and people are like, you know, the, the response rate for some of these surveys is like over 90%. I mean, mm. people welcome me into their home. They have yeah. no idea who I am. They hear this right. Hindi, Hindi with like a American accent. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, <laughs> they're, they're totally willing to spend an hour or an hour and a half chatting with me about their, the way they see the world. And that's, that's super exciting. And you learn something with, with literally every interview, every survey yeah. that I do, I learn something. So that's, that's a really amazing feeling. So uh, where can people find out more about you and your work? Twitter is one place. Where yeah. Else? Yeah. My name, Ajay Verghese. Uh, I tweet about a lot of research and field work photos and stuff. I have a social science research network. SS, so if you just type in my name SSRN. There are some there are some articles of mine that are posted, even like working papers. Um, okay, great. And then I have a Google site where it will have published papers, and there's also data on there. So data I collected, I try to make that publicly okay. available. So at some at some point in the future, there will be a data set of 2,000 Hindus and their mm -hmm. views on religion. So if you want to dig through that at some point, uh, it will be up there. And I can put the, these links in the show notes as well. Great. Well, um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I would love to do another episode with you and sure. dig more into this at some point. Yeah. Um, but for now, 
thank you. And I hope that you stay warm where you're at (laughs) all the way in Vermont. Really appreciate what you're doing and uncovering some of these undiscovered mysteries. (laughs) This is worthwhile work. Thanks so much for having me.